First, we're going to welcome Prasanna Srithiran, who's a mechanical engineer and computational biomechanist at the University of Melbourne, interested in the effects of neuromusculoskeletal disorders on gait and posture. He is a Melbourne Storm tragic who loves triathlon and ultra running, not super running, ultra running, and believes that joy is finding a little bit of cake in your beard 93 kilometres into a trail race. <laughs> Press. Thank you. Um, I literally found a bit of burger in my beard just then. Um, I was very happy. Um, now, I'm an engineer, and uh, as an engineer, I have this naive notion that uh, we should uh, you know, be actively involved in solving, or it's our mandate to solve the, the real um, and pressing social problems of our, of, of, of our world. Um, unfortunately, we don't always understand the basic science behind some of the problems. But often, uh, if we can understand a problem phenomenologically, it's enough to be able to then devise a solution and solve the problem and move society forward. And this is one such story. I was introduced to this uh, hero of mine when I was young. Uh, my father bought me a book um, on design and technology. And um, I hope you like his story as much as I do. But first, a little introduction. In a letter to the Times on 7th of July, 1855, Michael Faraday, yes, the Michael Faraday, wrote of a recent experience boating on the River Thames. Quote, the appearance and smell of the water at once, forced upon at once forced themselves upon my attention. The whole of the river was an opaque, pale brown fluid. Near the bridges, the feculents rolled up in clouds so dense that they were visible at the surface, even in water of this, this kind. Surely the river which flows through so many miles of London ought not to be allowed to become a fermenting sewer. Nor ought we be surprised if, ere many years hence, over a hot summer, over a hot season, it gives us sad proof of the folly of our carelessness. And he didn't have to wait long for that to occur. Three years later, the proof came in the form of the great stink of London. In an abnormally, in, in an abnormally hot, scorching dry summer of 1858, the water level in the Thames dropped significantly and the accumulated human, animal, and industrial waste discharged freely into the river over the course of a millennium began to ferment and literally cook. It radiated a putrid stench throughout the city, so strong that there were stories of, quote, men struck down with the stench of all kinds of fatal diseases upspringing on the river banks. Successive governments, six royal commissions over eight years, Tens of thousands of cholera deaths in the decade leading up to the Great Stink had failed to spark any action from the authorities. Unable to find a, seasonable, uh, a feasible solution to London's growing sewerage problem, and too afraid to, ask, uh, too afraid to risk an extraordinarily expensive and gargantuan infrastructure overhaul, Parliament preferred to do nothing but drowse its drapery in lime and hope like hell that poo would eventually go away. However, the great stink finally forced Parliament to act. The Times wrote, and quote, the intense heat had driven our legislators from those portions of their buildings which overlooked the river. A few members, indeed, bent upon investigating the matter to, the, to its very depth, ventured into the library 
but they were instantaneously driven to retreat, each man with handkerchief over his nose. And so on July 15, 1858, Benjamin Disraeli, who was then the leader of the House, tabled a bill to literally do what it takes to clean up the river. The bill passed in a record 18 days. And finally, he, Joseph Bazalgett, the focus of my talk tonight, that modest, unassuming, somewhat neurotic, and most superbly mutton-chopped Victorian engineer of all time, Joseph Bazalgette finally had the mandate and the money to revolutionize the city. Joseph William Bazalgette was born in 1819, the son of a Royal Navy captain, also called Joseph, Joseph William Bazalgette. Like his contemporary, fellow engineer Isambard Kingdom Brunel, his family history took him back all the way to France. At age 17, Bazalgette was apprenticed to the um, famous Irish railway engineer, Sir John McNeil, and was granted full membership of the Institution of Civil Engineers in 1846. Caught up in the furious pace of the railway revolution at the time, Bazalgette's expertise in drainage works and land reclamation was in constant demand. And he soon suffered a mental breakdown, overwhelmed by stress and overwork. However, the experience he gained, the experience he gained would help him in the years to come. In, 1940, in 1849, Bazalgette was appointed the assistant surveyor to the Commission of Sewers. Dogged by bureaucracy, funding delays, and vested political interests, the chief engineer of the commission, Frank Forster, quit and soon died from sheer overwork. Bazalgette was given the job, a perfect role for a workaholic like him. Now, under enormous political pressure, with his untiring work ethic, Bazalgette formulated his revolutionary plan for modernising London's sewer system, building upon some early ideas first proposed by Forster. Bazalgette, like Forster, recognised very early on that the only way to solve the problem was to simply eliminate raw sewage from the river. Hence, sewerage needed to be intercepted before it reached the Thames and its tributaries, and then somehow transported eastwards, downstream, outside the city limits from whence it could be discharged. Sounds simple, but not really. You see, most of London and its surrounds are actually lower than the elevation, uh, are of a lower elevation than the high watermark of the Thames. So Bazalgette underwent, uh, undertook some meticulous and systematic survey, uh, surveys of the landscape and included in his plans huge pumping stations at various strategic locations to lift sewerage high above the water, uh, waterline from which it could then flow eastwards by means of gravity. In places where sewers would need to be laid over low-lying ground, particularly along the banks of the Thames itself, he devised a series of embankments and aqueducts. The most famous of these were the iconic and much-loved much loved to, to today Victoria and Albert embankments in central London. Bazalgette's system was divided into two parts, a northern system, a northern drainage system, and a southern drainage system. Both of these would flow eastwards and empty uh, just outside the city limits. But to prevent sewerage being pushed up the river, Bazalgette designed a huge series of reservoirs at the outfall points to store sewerage during the low tide, which could then be freely discharged at high tide. Now, in defiance of engineering practice at the time, Bazalgette designed his sewers in the shape of an inverted egg. It was wide at the top and narrow at the bottom. Now, the construction skill and the expense of implementing this uh, sent 
city accountants into a bit of a rage because it was extraordinarily expensive. But this kind of design was the most efficient for withstanding the immense loads from above, but the narrow bottom meant that even small flows of sewerage could wash away very quickly. A consummate engineer, in sizing his sewers, Bazalgette generously accounted for future population growth and also increasing water usage per capita because at that time, water closets or flushing laboratories, uh, laboratories were basically being mandated and everyone was forced to install them. Furthermore, specif uh, his specifications were designed to handle sudden inflows due to rain and storms and to allow for the direct discharge into the Thames in case of overflow. And now this wouldn't be a problem because such events are not that frequent and would dilute any sewerage anyway. So all up, the project called for the construction of 82 miles of intercepting sewers, 1,100 miles of street sewers, 320 million bricks, 880,000 cubic yards of concrete, and excavations of 3.5 million cubic yards of earth over the course of three decades. So vast was the project that brickworks and cement mills were to be built on site to avoid transport, co transport costs and to keep up with the extraordinary volume of work and, and pace of work. Bazalgette estimated that the cost of the entire undertaking would be about three million pounds or 7.5 billion pounds in today's money. Turns out that was probably less than half the actual final cost of the project. But Bazalgette, by this time, had been nominated to uh, chief engineer of the newly formed Metropolitan Board of Works. Thanks to his burgeoning reputation and glowing testimonials from several uh, eminent engineers, including Brunel, the Stevensons, and William Cubitt. As this, now, this project was the largest civil engineering project of its time and demanded new ways of managing people and money. Large-scale contract uh, management had emerged from the Napoleonic Wars and Railroad Revolution, but nothing had ever been attempted on this scale. Now, Bazalgette, true to form, took on most of this work by himself, developing detailed drawings for each contract, employing quantity, quantity surveyors to meticulously, specify, uh, to meticulously specify the value and quantity for each contract, employing, um, developing and managing new uh, methods of competitive tendering, and signing off on literally every single bill and managing contractual disputes. So 10 years later, it's no surprise that he completely burnt out and that um, the Board of Works effectively ordered Bazalgette to, quote, absent himself from all duties for, the pro for, for a period of three months with a view to the restoration of his health. Of course, Bazalgette showed up three weeks later. In 1870, uh, Victoria Embankment was opened by the Prince of Wales to a huge positive public com commendation. Not only had it been expanded to house an underground, the, the underground railway, gas and water mains, surface roads, as well as the original intercepting sewers, uh, in its construction, Bazalgette had pioneered the use of Portland cement as a principal construction material. So nervous was he about the use of it that he ordered his deputy, engineer John Grant, to develop a special testing rig and to assess each and every batch of Portland cement delivered, literally thousands. But Grant would then use that information, that data, to then show that Portland cement was safe and strong and actually increased in strength when immersed in water, which is perfect for its role. In fact, 
the Portland cement was originally used to bind bricks. But because it was sub substantially cheaper than the bricks itself, uh, Bazalgette eventually ordered all his contractors to discard the bricks and build sewers purely out of Portland cement, saving the board and the city tens of thousands of pounds. Now, prior to uh, Bazalgette undertaking this immense uh, work, cholera epidemics were frequent and devastating. The prevailing belief at the time was that of um, miasma theory, this idea that disease was spread by foul vapours emanating from uh, insanitary environments. And it was vigorously promoted by many prominent people of the time, such as Edwin Chadwick and the Florence Nightingale. Now, under pressure from these uh, vested interests, in 1849, the Commission of Sewers banned cesspools and ordered all new dwellings to install water closets, so flushing lavatories, and demanded that house drains be connected directly uh, to street sewers. Now, while this improved conditions on, um, in the streets and communities, it just all it did was just take everyone's sewage and put it straight into the Thames, the main water source for most of the city. So the resulting cholera epidemic killed over 14,000 people in that year alone. Using that experience, in a much ignored paper by Dr. John Snow, he argued the role of, dis of these discharges from water closets in the spread of cholera. After a second academ uh, epidemic in 1852, in which over about 11,000 people died, Snow provided further quantitative evidence for this by studying the patterns of deaths up and downstream, with clean areas upstream showing about one-sixth of the death rate of those downstream. Yet this evidence was soundly dismissed by a scientific inquiry at the time. Nevertheless, one of the accidental and unintended consequences of Basil Jett's work was to almost completely eliminate cholera, typhoid, and other waterborne diseases from the city of London. Thanks to Basil Jett's vision, the Thames is now one of the cleanest metropolitan rivers in the world. However, just quietly, by shifting um, sewage downstream, he basically started 15 to 20 years of cholera epidemics east of London, but we won't mention that. <laughs> um, so in 1875, Bazalgette was knighted, and it was, another, it was only another 10 years before the last section of his massive undertaking was finally completed. Although by now his magnificent muscle, uh, mutton chops had turned to snow white, uh, he continued to consult on many major sanitation projects worldwide, and also contributed to innumerable civil projects in London itself. In 1884, he was elected president of the Institution of Civil Engineers, um, where he worked to improve the training and education of young engineer apprentice, apprentices. He died seven years later, aged 71. Although he was well known and highly regarded in his time, he was never the celebrity uh, of his contemporaries, uh, such as Brunel and the Stevensons. Today, he is remembered by very few people, and celebrated only by a modest, uh, a modest monument, a bust installed on his most visible and famous work, the Victoria Embankment. Nevertheless, London and almost every other major city in the world would not be uh, where they are today without the untiring dedication of this modest man who, to quote the observer in 1861, undertook the most extensive and wonderful work of modern times. So ladies and gents, the next time you're at home or you're at work and you're pushing out a poo, Think about what your life would be like without Joseph Bazalgette. Thank you. <laughs>